0: Hi, I'm Steven, the host of Let's Go There. And I created this podcast because many of today's most critical issues are so filled with tension and polarization that most of us avoid them altogether. The result is that we miss out on opportunities for meaningful connection and progress, while the world's most pressing conversations are being carried by those least effectively having them. On this podcast, we take on tough conversations from a Christian perspective with nuance and respect so we can learn well, love well, and leave better. Because when we talk about tough issues with humility, we grow together. All right. Hello, welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this Facebook Live and to what is essentially a special live edition of uh, the let's go there podcast that's a a little podcast i started that um i've I've just run four or five episodes some of them i've been able to have some guests on and some of them i've i've just kind of shared some stuff solo but um i wanted to do this tonight on election night um and i think that it's timely i think it's a it's there's something important about that context of doing it on election night, because I think that there's going to be, um, some shared feelings that we're all going to be experiencing in some ways tonight. And that's that. I think a lot of people are going to be feeling stressed. They're going to be anxious. They're going to be, um, you know, probably a lot of us are going to be experiencing some frustration with just the general, um, politics in America, right? I mean, I think that's a sentiment that we all share. And tonight in particular, it feels like there's a lot at stake. And for a lot of people, there is a lot at stake for a lot of people. um, They have a lot of emotional energy riding on the results that um, we may or may not get tonight, or we may get in two weeks, you know, depending or, or who knows, you know, depending on how things go with this election and how contested things are and things get drawn out with mail-in voting and all of that. But the reason why I wanted to go live today is because I've been learning something interesting that I wanted to share with you. I've been learning something interesting, um, about polarization in the United States and about, um, something that kind of surprised me about it. And that, um, I think brings some really interesting insight to it and brings some needed complexity and nuance to something that we uh, sometimes just think of as really simple and obvious uh, left versus right polarization. And uh, stop me if you've heard this one before, right? We're becoming more polarized than we've ever been in this nation. And I think there's a reason why you're hearing that. Um, a lot most likely. And that's because it's actually, um, it's actually probably true. Um, There's a lot of information that kind of backs that up. There's less split ticket voting than there's ever been. And there's more people who um, vote, you know, strictly down ideological partisan lines. And so polarization is at an all time high. And there is a lot of emotional energy behind that right now because we do have this two party system uh, and we tend to think of things in terms of left versus right. But, but this is what I'm wanting to share with you today. There's an organization called more in common and they did a, this massive study back in 2018 um, because they wanted to take a deeper look at um, polarization in the United States and, and kind of finding out what's driving that, and what does that actually look like? And so um, what they found was that people's core beliefs actually corresponded much more strongly with their ideology than any other of the kind of standard demographic information. So some of the stuff that we might expect, um, you know, race, gender, those things, but even pilot even political affiliation, so even party affiliation or identifying as being strongly conservative or identifying as being strongly, uh, or excuse me, strongly Republican or strongly Democrat, um, actually didn't correspond as consistently with the way people viewed the issues than core beliefs, um, essentially how they felt about some, some key things such as um, personal identity, moral issues, um, you know, the how, how central our national identity is, some of these kind of things that define our worldview. And by doing that, they actually found that that there was not two, but, but seven different clusters. They found seven clusters based on similar core beliefs that, that corresponded really strongly to how they view the world. And one of the things that really surprised me about this, and that's what actually got me really intrigued by it and interested in it in the first place and, and, and why I wanted to dig deeper into this report and read the whole thing, which was 140 pages I read in the last two days, this report, because I wanted, I wanted to dig in and find out what was going on. And um, here's what really surprised me that there was 14% of the population, 14% of the population that comprise the groups that we sometimes tend to assume are the two groups that the 14% comprised the most right most and the leftmost group defined by them as progressive activists and devoted conservatives, right? So 8% of Americans fell into this category that they, that they called progressive activists and 6% fell into this category that they called devoted conservatives. And I'm going to read these definitions here of, um, or, or kind of, summaries, I guess, of, of these different factions. And I think that it's really interesting because it sounds a lot like our traditional view, or I should say our, our dominant view of kind of the left and the right that are fighting, that are quabbling on social media, on TV, progressive activists, younger, highly engaged, secular, cosmopolitan, angry devoted conservatives, white, retired, highly engaged, uncompromising, patriotic, right? I think that kind of fits right into our stereotypes of, oh, this is the right, this is the left, and and they're fighting and they're and they're battling, they're going after it. Um, but actually, that's only 14% of Americans. And, and I think that those on the wings, they have this outsized voice in public discourse, um, but they don't actually accurately represent the views of the country at all. And so why? Why do they have this? Why do they have so much of an outsized influence and outsized voice? And why do we tend to think about these groups, even though they comprise such a minority of the population? Um, there could be a lot of different reasons, but I think that, here's a, that a few of them are that they have stronger convictions about what they believe politically, right? So for these people, the study found that their political ideology was more central to their identity as a person, right? So if you can imagine if it's if it's more central to your identity as a person and how you view yourself, then you're going to be more likely to share that um, and to have confidence about it, right? Because if you're not sure exactly where you land on a view, you're not likely to you know, go out and share how you're not confident about it. Right. But if you're like, no, I think I see this clearly, you're going to share about that. And so they're more passionate. They're naturally more passionate um, about their convictions and their stronger convictions. And another thing that kind of ties along with that is that they're, they're just way more involved in politics and in civic engagement. And they're also way more active in sharing content on social media And so there's these kind of natural things that the people on the extremes are more likely to put themselves out there and to basically, um, you know, force their way into the public conversation because it means so much to them. But then on top of that, you also have um, kind of these accelerating factors, um, one of them being partisan news networks, right? So news networks, um, they push partisan angles to varying degrees because, That's the model that they've found will get them, um, you know, ultimately viewership, followership, money. And and the same exact thing can go for social media networks and social media algorithms. So even though uh, a social media network may not necessarily um, have a specific political bias that they push, um, that's, they're actually um, the algorithms that are behind what gets promoted, what gets boosted, what gets shared, what gets viewed on social media is strongly associated, uh, or I should say, um, strongly tends towards sharing the most extreme views because they're the most inflammatory. um, They get the most clicks, they get the most views, they get the most shares. At the end of the day for them, it's just about the bottom line. It's just about money. And Um, those algorithms are designed to make them the most, which happens when they sell the most ads, which happens when content gets engaged with the most. And the content that gets engaged with the most is that is the content. That's the most unambiguous. It's clear. It's, it catches your eye because it's, um, emotionally charged. Right. And so, There's a great documentary that came out recently. It's on Netflix. Um, Brittany and I watched it. Uh, It's called The Social Dilemma. It dives into a lot of this and it's a really interesting watch. I I recommend it. Um, But those are just some of the factors that lead to this um, small portion, relatively small portion of the population that are at the extremes, the far right and the far left, but that actually um, are more similar to um what we think of when we think of the right and the left and polarized united states than the majority of americans and so as a result you know much of our politics is it's it's framed in this tribalistic us versus them way that doesn't leave a lot of room for nuance for debate for compromise and and collaboration but um i guess the obvious question is well What about everyone else, right? So if that's only 14%, then the other 86%, where do they fall and what are these other seven groups? So I'm going to share this actually. I want to go ahead and just share my screen um, because I want to show you this graphic. I think it's a little bit easier to visualize for those of you who are watching this on Facebook, either live or After the fact, um, for those on the podcast, don't worry. I'm going to also, you know, um, do my best to explain it so that you can, so that you can hear it even if you're audio only. So I'm sharing this now. Um, and this is the seven, um, clusters based on core beliefs that came out of this study. Um, and by the way, you can see right here, this document is 160 pages, um, this entire study. And it's super interesting and it's, it's, it's well-presented it's professionally done. Um, but it's also fairly readable. Um, I, uh, will, I can, I will share this. I'll put this in the show notes on the podcast. I can put this in the description of the video on Facebook, um, the link to it, it's just, it's publicly available on the internet and it's a great, it provides such great insight. But here are the seven categories that we're looking at. And um, for the sake of those who are listening to audio only, um, I'm reading these left to right and they're, they're ranked left to right based on where they fall on the political spectrum. And so on the very left edge, what we talked about already, progressive activists at 8%, then you have traditional liberals, make up 11% of the population. Next to them is passive liberals, at 15% of the population. And then you have this this group that's actually the biggest group, right? Um, In the middle, it's the politically disengaged, the politically disengaged. And then you have moderates, 15%, politically disengaged by the way, that's 26% if I didn't say that. Um, Moderates, 15%. Then you have traditional conservatives, at 19%, and you have devoted conservatives at 6%. And so, as I keep talking here for a little bit, I'm just going to go ahead and leave this up here on the screen for you to see because uh, I think it's just a great reference. Um, and while and and I want to kind of share a little bit more about these groups so that you can understand what we're looking at because I think this actually provides a more nuanced, more accurate picture of where we stand as a country than our oversimplified um, right versus left. And maybe there's some in the middle who, who feel disenfranchised, but the majority of it's these, these people on the polls who are fighting. And, um, you know, I think this is, this is kind of when you hear about maybe the silent majority or this or that. I mean, this brings a little bit more clarity to that. Um, and so let me just quick read the summaries that they came up with for these different clusters. So, again, left to right progressive activists, younger, highly engaged, secular, cosmopolitan, angry that's eight percent of the population. Then you have traditional liberals, traditional liberals making up 11 percent of the population, retired, open to compromise, rational, cautious, and then. 15% of the population, passive liberals. Passive liberals are unhappy, insecure, distrustful, and disillusioned, right? So that's why they labeled them passive liberals. So they're liberal in their viewpoint, um, but they are pretty disillusioned with the state of things in our country, and they're not very actively engaged in in politics or, or public discourse. And then you have the, pub- the politically disengaged, our largest faction, 26%. Um, generally describe them as young, low-income, distrustful, detached, patriotic, and conspiratorial. Um, and the politically disengaged, they um, are similarly or even more so detached from civic engagement, but they, they tend to actually um, trend a little bit more socially conservative than that passive liberals group. Then you have your moderates at 15%. Moderates are engaged, civic-minded, middle-of-the-road, pessimistic, Protestant. Then traditional conservatives at 19%, religious, middle-class, patriotic, moralistic. And then on the right at devoted conservatives, white, retired, highly engaged, uncompromising, patriotic. And so those descriptions are just to kind of paint a, a mental picture of you know, maybe what a stereotypical or, or a, you know, a conglomerate person in there might look like. But in reality, obviously, we know um, there's a lot of diversity within each and every one of these. And of course, there are, um, you know, there's young black devoted conservatives, they're not all white and retired, there's secular traditional conservatives, they're not all religious, there's um, passive liberals who Um, you know, who aren't so distrustful or who aren't so unhappy. Uh, There's traditional liberals who are younger and and not um, older and retired, you know, so obviously those are summaries, but um, I think it does paint an interesting picture of kind of these different clusters. And there's a lot of good information in here. Obviously, we don't have time to get into all of it, but helps nuance out. Here's how they came to this. how these conclusions. Here's more what defines these beyond just this very simplistic understanding. But that's what brings us now to the exhausted majority, right? And so if you're looking at this screen share, if you're with me on video, you can see that the exhausted majority makes up the traditional liberals, passive liberals, politically disengaged and the moderates. Okay, so then they have on these wings, they have the wing on the left side that's progressive activists and on the right side the wings are the traditional conservatives and the devoted conservatives. And so um this is um the exhausted majority and then kind of the key here is that the Exhausted majority is not just this. They're not centrist. It's not some middle point, some halfway between. There's, there's a ton of diversity ideologically and amongst their core beliefs across these different clusters. Um, there's, a, there's a ton of variance. And on from issue to issue, there's a ton of variance from cluster to cluster. But these are the characteristics that the exhausted majority actually have in common, even across these different ideological Lines. They are more ideologically flexible. They support finding political compromise. They're fatigued by US politics today and they feel forgotten in political debate. And keep in mind, you guys, this is 67% of the population that we're talking about, the exhausted. Majority, And so one quick side note before before I explore this idea of the exhausted majority a little bit more, because I think it's hugely important, because I think it's something that um, so many of us may identify with and yet didn't really know existed in terms of having it actually defined with clarity here. And um, one thing that you may have noticed was traditional conservatives were left out of the exhausted majority whereas traditional liberals were included in the exhausted, in the exhaust, excuse me, the exhausted majority. And so why is that? Well, right away, I just want to clarify, it's not because traditional liberals are more central or mainstream in their viewpoints and conservatives are, you know, they're just crazy far right, um, right wing in the sense that we often think right wing, right? Um, that's not what it is at all. Actually, Traditional conservatives and traditional liberals are, are pretty um, similar in the sense of being less extreme than the far right and far left views, um, but still holding some things in common with them. The reason that the traditional conservatives do not fit in with the exhausted majority is that the exhausted majority the consistent thing that all those different clusters have in common is that they express disillusionment and frustration with the current state of politics. Whereas traditional conservatives are, um, they're far more likely to express confidence, excitement, and optimism about the current state of the government or the current state of politics. Okay. So, because of that, because of their mood about the state of politics in the country today, they're actually a lot more closely aligned in their view of that with devoted conservatives than they are with the exhausted majority. So, if you're a traditional conservative, um, you know, if you feel like that's probably what identifies you identify most with it, it, as you hear these descriptions. Um, but you also identify with feeling frustrated with the current state of politics um, and, and really disillusioned with the, the way everything is presented, you know. um, then a lot of this that we talk about with the exhausted majority um, will probably resonate with you quite a bit as well. So this is what I think is so significant here is that while much of politics seems to revolve around this direct conflict between left and right, two-thirds, two-thirds, 67% of Americans actually belong to this exhausted majority. And just to flesh this out a little bit um, more, here's, the, here's what the exhausted majority has in common that I think actually um, it's good to know, it's good to be aware of, and it presents opportunity. Um, this is what 67% of Americans as a part of the exhausted majority uh, have in common. One, ideological flexibility, right? So the exhausted majority uh, shows that a majority of Americans have more complex views on contested issues than our polarizing public debates might suggest. Uh, just one example of that, um, the, the uh, topic of racism, right? So amongst the exhausted majority, an average of 87% agree that problems of racism are at least somewhat serious. And at the same time, 87% oppose the use of race in college admissions um, in a sense of, hey, should we skew this towards minorities or to previously um, oppressed historically, you know, groups? To, to kind of qualify for that. So 87% oppose that um, as opposed to 40% of the progressive activists, right? So there's this kind of, um, there's more room for nuance where it's, hey, we see this side of the issue, but actually we also see this side of the issue. And uh, we really get what this group is concerned about, but we totally get what this group is concerned about. Um, there's more of that in the middle. And also because they're, they're, their sense of personal identity is less attached to a political ideology or, or a group of uh, similarly politically minded that has a, just this um, clear cut unambiguous view on these issues. The exhausted majority tend to approach these issues with more flexibility and without that lens of tribalism. Okay. So ideological flexibility. The second one is they support compromise Um, They they disapprove. They're frustrated with this partisanship. They're frustrated with the way that political debate is overwhelmed in the public sphere. Um, They said at a 65% clip that the people I agree with politically need to be willing to listen to others and compromise. And they said at a 64%, we need to heal as a nation. Both of these were significantly higher than what was shared by the groups in the wings. The third thing is they're just, they're fatigued with politics. They're pessimistic about the state of America's politics today. They want to see this, these tribes on the left and the right move beyond the conflict. And they are concerned that America may be at a place where the relentless back and forth has gone too far for America to recover and move beyond this division. The fourth thing is that they feel forgotten. By tribal politics, they feel forgotten by the current political atmosphere, that their voices aren't actually heard because there's so much attention on these directly opposing views and the, the, the conflict and the drama between those, that their views that, that may be more complex or more nuanced, it's just like um, they don't feel that's actually being represented out there in government, out there in politics, or that when they want to share that, that they have a place to do that. Um, they're actually uh, It's actually common for, for people in these clusters that are belong to the exhausted majority to be afraid of sharing something because of the pushback that they might get from the left or from the right, right. And I think that a lot of us can relate to that feeling of I don't even want to dive into this topic because one, I just don't feel like I know enough. Um, but I think that sometimes behind that, I don't think that I know enough. Um, it's, it's not always, I don't think I know enough about this issue to, to add anything meaningful. Um, it might be, I don't think that I know enough about this issue um, to not embarrass myself. If somebody challenges me hard or to be able to defend my position, if somebody on one side or the other, comes at me with a bunch of information, right? Because if it's a safe environment, it's people that you trust and you care about, and they're not going to judge you and you feel pretty confident about that. Um, A lot of times we might be, we might actually be like, well, you know, I actually do have some views on this issue. It's not that I know so little about it that I don't even feel like I have any to contribute. It's actually just that I don't, I don't feel comfortable stepping into this conversation because my view is, is it's, in between makes it a little bit murkier, um, but I'm not an expert. And if I'm not an expert, then I don't think I can stand up to the criticism and the backlash that I might get if I put myself out there and share this view. And so the result of this is that almost half of the members of the clusters in the exhausted majority selected none when asked ways they had been active politically in the past year. So they've, they've largely disengaged from the political sphere. And, and I think that the danger that that really leaves us in is that when that frustration and disillusionment of the exhausted majority combines with the factors we already talked about earlier that amplify the voices of the extremes and, and further, um, you know, I think that what happens is when, when you combine those two, it just will concede even more of Civic engagement, public debate, leadership of our government to these opposing wings that hold more extreme views that actually don't represent the majority of Americans, right? Because if the majority of the Americans that are feeling fed up and disillusioned are retreating and sitting on the bench because they're so frustrated with the system and with politics, and it just doesn't feel like there's a place for them in it then that just leaves even more space to be occupied by the people who will happily occupy it because they're very passionate about their beliefs, um, but their beliefs don't actually represent the majority of Americans. And that's why people don't feel like their voices are heard because the 6% on the far right and the 8% on the far left, those 14% are having so much of the public dialogue, even while a lot of times their views are... Uh, vastly out of line with America as a whole, or even with the groups that are next to them. Like devoted conservatives are often um, much more extreme in their views than traditional conservatives. And on the other end, it's even more of a gap like progressive activists. There's certain issues where they're just completely um, out of touch with, what with, what uh, a sentiment in America as a whole, is they're just in their own world in terms of, they approach these issues, but in a lot of ways um, they've come to represent the left in, in a public eye and they're seen as um, this is this is a more liberal view, this is a left view, um, when in reality traditional liberal would probably um, would hate to be identified as that because there's, so, there's actually just a massive gap in their actual beliefs and views on political issues. Um, and so, we have this caricature where it can be tempting to see conservatives as the six percent and liberals as the as the eight percent because they have such a large voice. And so I think that's the danger here. But I think that there's good that we can take from this, and there's uh, some some hope that we can take from this as well. Because um, what this means, what this data shows, is that the extreme tribalism that so many of us are frustrated with it doesn't actually represent the majority of the nation, right? And so I think it's kind of, it can be discouraging when we see that and we think, seriously, this is what everybody's like, like I, you know, this is our country's hopeless, but the reality is much different, right? 67% belong to this exhausted majority that are actually believing compromise. They're hungry for compromise. They want to see uh, uh, different, they want to see uh, a system where there's collaboration, where there's honest conversation, where people are coming to the table. Um, and so I think they're encouraging takeaways from that. And, and, and this is kind of what I want to encourage you with if you resonate with that. If you feel like you're in the exhausted majority, first of all, I want to encourage you that you're not alone, right? You're not alone. Clearly, clearly, the majority of Americans have a lot that they maybe feel in common in terms of how they view politics today, even across a diversity of political ideologies. Again, we're talking about the spectrum in a lot of ways from more conservative ideas to more liberal ideas, but yet um, the shared idea of, hey, we're not set in this is the way to be our way or the highway we want to be a part of a system where there's collaboration, cooperation, compromise, right? And so you're not alone. You're not alone in your frustration with the current system and your desire for a better one. And I think that that means that then there is hope, right? There's hope. I think that there's um, that uh, many of us may be feeling like, oh my goodness, with the way things are in politics right now, I am just not sure that this country has, is is going to be able to get past the current division. Um, but I think there's hope for that because we know that in reality, the majority of Americans um, have a desire to move past that division. Um, and, and I think what that leads us to is that you can be a part and we can be a part of the solution to that, right? And that's not by any means at the exclusion of those on the wings um, and in traditional conservatives, I know there's some traditional conservatives probably that are tuning in um, on the Facebook or on the podcast. Um, By no means is this at the exclusion of traditional conservatives. I think um, what that just shows is that traditional conservatives, um, they don't have that same sense of disillusionment but that doesn't mean that they can't easily um, recognize that sense of disillusionment and meet that with um, humility and open mind, um, uh, having great, respectful, honoring conversations. Uh, I know that so many of the uh, friends that I have are uh, that are traditional conservatives. That's exactly the values that they have and want to bring to the table. And so, Um, I think that the hope is that there's there's a lot of people who want to see something different. Um, But I think what it comes down to is that we have got to resist this false choice, because I think there's a false choice that a lot of us feel like we're presented with, where on the one side, we can either choose a side, we can kind of get sucked into the angry tribal politics by Um, okay, well, if I want to be a part of this, then I have to pick which side I agree with and view with. And then I have to, I have to go engage with that and and be active in that. Um, or if I just don't want anything to do with that at all, then I just need to, I'm just going to disengage. I'm just, I'm not going to enter into that conversation. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to bother with it because it's so heated and it's so, um, full of vitriol that it's just like, I don't want to touch it. Right. And so I think we feel like we're, we feel like there's this false choice, like politics means polarization. And so we either have to join into the polarization or we have to just be people who are like, you know what, I'm going to leave that to the people who actually enjoy arguing. And I am just going to focus on my world and chill out because I don't want anything to do with that. Right. But if we do that, If we do that, then it leaves the leadership of our nation. It leaves conversations about critical issues that impact people every single day. These are real issues that matter for our country. They matter for our world. They matter for our families and for our friends, right? These issues matter. And we cannot leave all of these conversations and all of these um, decisions to the all minorities that are shouting the loudest, but that don't by any means represent the majority of Americans, right? Instead, I think what I want to encourage to do, and this is going to look different for everyone, right? Because we all have a different voice in this. We all have different gifts. We all have different um, ways in which we can approach this. But man, what I want to encourage us to do, regardless of where we fall on the spectrum, even if you're listening to this and you are a progressive activist, or you are a devoted conservative. Um, Listen, devoted conservatives, progressive activists, we love you. We want you to be a part of the conversation, right? Like for everyone here, I think we have to choose the complicated, risky, humble approach of leaning into the issues that matter most to us in our country and doing it with empathy, doing it with respect, doing it with nuance, doing it with an open mind, being willing to compromise, and I think that if we do that, we have an opportunity as the exhausted majority to take back politics in a sense, right? And, and I don't mean that in a crazy revolutionary way of like, uh, us, it's, not a, it's not a new us versus them, right? Because us versus them is the problem. But what I'm saying is there's enough people who are disenfranchised with us versus them that... Um, I think we have an opportunity by getting involved and being willing to wade into the uncomfortable, um, in the, in the kind of scary, right. Because of the current culture of polarization, but like, Hey, if we can come together knowing, Hey, this represents two thirds of the country falls into this category of exhausted majority. And we say, let's come to the table. Let's have meaningful conversations. Let's find ways through relationship and conversation to bring those people who are on the wings into that conversation. Let's force productive dialogue through respect and humility. And let's let's not just sit on our couch and concede politics to the polarization that's making us so angry and, and frustrated at home. And let's instead go, hey, what can we do to get involved with this, to be a part of this, and to um, maybe create a, a, a pushback towards a more civil, productive, public discourse, civic engagement, and way that we can think about politics. Hey, I'm saying this on election night 2020, we might find out six hours from now who the president of the United States for the next four years is going to be or we might not and it might drag on and it might be crazy because of all the things that are making this election unique it's not going to be easy there's going to be a lot of things that make you want to tune out of politics and and I totally get that but I just want to encourage you you're not alone there's hope for our future even our future as a country We can be a part of the solution. You can be a part of the solution. It doesn't mean you have to jump into these polarized debates. um, But I think what it means is starting with relationship, having meaningful conversations on a basis of mutual respect, finding ways to get involved and to think with nuance, even in the face of apparent dichotomies in our society. Um, hope you found this interesting. I just realized that I left this up the entire time and that the screen share was up the whole time. So hope you really liked this graphic. I think it's kind of cool. It's probably more interesting than just my face in my living room. So, um, hope you guys can, um, you know, stay positive, stay sane, enjoy election night if that's possible. Um, and Be encouraged.